the training that I went to was called New Franchisee Training. Now, before you get any bright ideas, I did not buy a franchise. Um, I don't have that kind of money. Um, but almost everybody that I was in class with did and brought somebody with them that was going to help them get their business started. Um, and they invested a bunch of money to be able to own their own business. But the franchise system is kind of interesting, right? Because you own your own business, but, but not completely. Um, there's some flexibility in how you run it, but at the same time, like, you can't do whatever you want. It's just like a restaurant that's a franchise, right? I mean, you, you can buy it and own it, but you can't do whatever you want. Um, and it was, it was funny because there was a portion of class, and you could see the people in the class that were actually owners because they paid a little more attention. <laughs> some of the rest of us, but there's a portion of a class where they just went over things that can get your franchise taken away from you. Um, and it didn't seem like it would be really hard to avoid these things because they were, they were just like blatant, intentional breaking of the law. Um, like doing wrong things with workers' compensation and, you know, just things that are illegal. And, but they shared specific examples and, and where people just got way too greedy and tried to do, you know, they thought they were tricky and they were going to get away with it, and they didn't, um, and got caught, and, and boom, just like that, boom, business gone. All the money you invested, all the time you invested, gone. So even though they're business owners, they're still, in a sense, kind of renting um, their business from, from the, the larger organization. There's somebody above them that has more power than they do. Um, and it's not that these things were widespread. There were just a few examples here and there. But they go through it, obviously, to scare you. Um, and it just got me thinking, you know, and especially with reading the verses that, that I read preparing for today's message that, um, you know, while I wanted to sit there and judge these people and say, well, gosh, you're stupid. Why would you do that? I think that what led them to do what they did exists in every single one of us. Like we have this, there are times in our lives when we think we are way more powerful than we are. We think we're smarter than we actually are. <laughs> Um, we think that we have a better plan than anybody else and that, that we know best. Um, and so with that, let's jump into what we're going to read today. Um, Luke 20. So if you have Bibles with you, if you like to read on your app, pull it up. Um, it is, there's some, it's a good chunk of, of text, so I, I would love for you to follow along with me if you can. Um, it's Luke 20. Uh, Luke 21 through 19. So I'll give you a second because I, I know that it takes a minute to click all those buttons and find the pages. Luke 20, 1 through 19. Um, starts like this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the, the people and preaching the religious law, and the elders came up to him, they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Jesus responds. He says, let me ask you a question first, he replied. Did John's authority, and by John he means John the Baptist, John's authority, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves and they decided that if we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they finally replied that they didn't know. And then Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And I want to break right there just for a second, just to kind of, this, these first, this first little set of verses right here sets up the whole thing, because we're going to talk about a parable that Jesus responds with, and, and I want to make sure that we get the first part of this, and we understand kind of where he's coming from when he, when he, when he moves forward. Um, Jesus was constantly going after the religious leaders of the day, right? The religious elite, the, the people 
um, that kind of lorded over their power on the, on the, on the people. Uh, and in return, what they started doing was they started trying to trap Jesus. They tried to get him to say things that would they, enable them to arrest him. Um, so the most important line is in verse 2. They demanded by, by what authority. That's what they're doing. They're questioning his authority. They're not doing it. They didn't ask that question because they really want to know the answer. They asked it because they're trying to get him to say something so they can arrest him and kill him. That's really what they're doing. Um, again, they're silly because, like, can you actually trick God? Can you, can you trick him? No. Um, and so Jesus responds to that questioning of his authority with, with this parable. And, and it, depending on your translation, I think I'm looking at NLT. They call it the parable of evil farmers. And in some cases, it's called the parable of the tenants. Um, and I'll just read it, and then we'll jump in. Now, Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmer saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen. His listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone who falls on it. The teachers of the religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Okay, there's a lot there. So I think the first thing that, I, that we want to do is just unpack a little bit of what this would have meant to the people that he was actually talking to, the religious leaders of the day. It, it's going to mean something different to them than it is to us. And so let's talk about that first. Um, we're going to talk about that first, and then we're going to jump into, like, what, what, how does this impact us? Like, what does this mean for us? Because obviously we weren't the original hearers of this. So the story simplified is a man owns a vineyard. He leases it to some tenant farmers. And when it came time to collect his share of the crop, he sent service to col uh, servants to collect it, one after another. He sent three, and every single one of them got beaten up and thrown out. So finally, he sends his son, thinking that they won't hurt him, but they, they take him out and kill him um, so that they can have the vineyard for themselves. So parables are like codes or analogies. And, and if you've read a lot of them, that Je Jesus spoke in parables a lot, right? Some of them are hard to understand. Some of them you have to like really think about and, and spend some time on. Well, I can promise you that they didn't have to think about this one very much at all, the, the religious leaders that were hearing it. Um, it would have been very easy for them to figure out, which is why they say immediately like they wanted to arrest him on the spot. It wasn't like veiled criticism. It was a shot across the bow. It got their attention. And it was one of the things that continued to lead to them ratcheting up their, their efforts to, to trap him and to arrest him. So 
As we go forward, we're going to talk about all the things that this parable means, means to them, means to us. And it can get a little tricky going back and forth from a parable to, to real life. And so, but all of the people in this story, in the parable that Jesus uses, every single character represents somebody else, right? That's, that's kind of what a parable does. So before we jump into this, I want to, let's just set the table for who all these characters are. There's, there's four characters. There's an owner, there's the tenants, there's servants, and there's the son. Okay, so can, can you guys tell me who's the owner? Shout it out if you know it. We're going to do a little crowd participation right now. Who do you think the owner of the vineyard represents? God, yes. Who do you think the tenants of the, the vineyard represent? For the people he's talking to. He's... Re- religious leaders, yes. Um, who are the servants, do you think? Prophets? I think I heard somebody say prophets. That's absolutely right. And who's the son? Jesus. Jesus, yes. Very good. You get an A+. Plus. Awesome job. Um, so this parable is just a way that, that Jesus is retelling the sordid story between God and the Israelites, right? God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt at Mount Sinai. They agree to be his people. God says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be set apart. You'll be different. And what the job of the Israelites was, was to represent God to the world, right? That's what he wanted. He wanted them to be a kingdom of priests and be different so that the people around would know who God is. But what did they do? What did the Israelites do? Around every corner, they ran away from God. They worshiped other gods. And and God would constantly, throughout the history of their relationship, he would send prophets to give them messages, and to try to get them to come back, right? And for a while they would, and then they'd run away again, and then he'd send another prophet. But there was a period of time where every time he sent a prophet, they would beat him up and send him out of town, or they'd kill him. Um, They killed lots of prophets. Until finally, God sent his own son, just like in the parable, God sends his own son to these religious leaders, to the Israelites, to try to get them to change their ways. And instead of actually listening to him and changing their ways, what do they do? But they kill him because they were more interested in protecting themselves and keeping control of what they thought was theirs than they were interested in actually considering that maybe God, this is God. Maybe he is who he says he is. The religious leaders would likely have heard very clearly that Jesus was calling them murderers and that he was the son of God and that rejecting him would lead to their destruction. Now to them... Somebody claiming to be the son of God was blasphemy, which in Israelite law was punishable by death, which is why they wanted to arrest him, which is why they eventually crucified him. So now that's kind of what it would mean to the Israelites and and the people that were hearing this message. But, you know, if we talk about that the whole time, you're probably like, well, what does that mean for me? I'm not an Israelite, and you're not. Um, But he is... There is things in here that are useful for us, even though he's not, we're not the original hearers. Because as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, right? All scripture is from God, and, and it can be useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. So for our purposes today, there are five things, and I wanted to put them on the outline, but I did not get that done. So on the back side of your 
handout, there is a blank space for you to write these down, if you so choose. Um, but we're going we're gonna to go through these here. Number one of the five takeaways from this parable for us is God has placed us in his vineyard for his purpose. And his purpose is for us to bear fruit. So another, I'll use this word vineyard occasionally, and, and vineyard, I mean, it's just God's kingdom, right? That's what it is. Um, but what other purpose could there be for planting a vineyard other than to get fruit, right? I mean, that's the whole point of a vineyard. Um, in this analogy, it sounds like the tenants, though, had it pretty good, right? These tenant farmers, you know, the owner planted the vineyard, and all they had to do was work it and provide for their families, and he, and he gave them a really good situation, and he wasn't very demanding either, based on the fact that he kept sending servants and they kept beating him up and he just kept sending them. Like he wasn't exactly a rough guy to, to work for, it doesn't seem. And that's what God did for the Israelites. Through their history, he gave them a pretty good deal. He rescued them from slavery. He gave them this great land to go live in. He drove out enemy after enemy after enemy. And he protected them. And he did all of that for, for a purpose, right? He did that for a purpose. And it was for them to represent him to the nations. It was for them to be the vehicle with which he would grow his kingdom, that he would help people know who he is. He did it so that they would bear fruit. He did it for the fruit. That's why he had them there in the first place. And the same, the same is true of us, right? Um, God has set us up pretty good. You know, the words that, um, that Mike shared... Um, as he was getting ready to introduce that last song. Couldn't have been more on point for what we're talking about today. You know, I know there's, there's times when it doesn't feel like we're set up very good, <laughs> but we are. And, and I always go back to the beginning. First and foremost, we have life. Like, we're here. We're breathing. And every day is a gift from God. And not only that, but, you know, God sent Jesus to die for all of us so that we could, through knowing him and, and giving our lives to him, that we could have life, that we could have peace and joy on this earth and so that we could live eternally with him. And, and that's way beyond anything we deserve. He's rescued us too from slavery, just like he did the Israelites. It's a different kind of slavery, right? And he saved us all from something different. Maybe he saved you from, maybe he's restored a broken relationship in your life. Maybe he saved you from addiction. Maybe he saved you from worshiping money or success or any other things that the world might tell us are the things that we should care about. Whatever it is, if you've accepted Jesus as your savior, he's changed something about you. Something's different about you. For me, um, it's real easy. I, I was, my, my, the thing I was a slave to was, was money and success and, and stuff. Um, I had a chance to, uh, as I was sitting in the airport waiting for my flight, I had to go to the airport at 4 o'clock, and my flight didn't leave till 8.30. And so I was sitting there with uh, this person I'd been in training with, and, and she and I were just talking. Well, that was an interesting conversation, longer than we have time for. But I, she was asking me questions about what I used to do, and I was sharing my story with her, and, and we got to talking about houses somehow. And, you know, it just reminded me of how God has changed me because when I first moved to Omaha, I cared a lot about what my house looked like and what neighborhood it was in and how it looked. And, and my, mar or my, marriage, my mortgage reflected that because it was expensive. <laughs> and it, was, it always felt kind of tight. Um, and we were just talking about where I live now. And, and it's fine. I mean, it's, it's a fine house. But the carpet's frayed. The cupboards are ugly. 
I mean, it's, there's some things about it that, that are way different than, and, and trust me, I care about it sometimes. Don't, don't get me wrong. I care about it sometimes. <laughs> but we, ha- I haven't, we haven't done anything to the house. Like, we haven't changed the carpet. We haven't painted the cabinets. We're, we've talked about it a bunch. We just haven't quite got to it yet. Winter was hard. <laughs> it was hard to be motivated when you had to shovel snow every weekend. Um, and by the way, if, if, you know, you recently bought a new house or, you know, you live in a nicer house than mine, like, I'm not talking to you. This is not, <laughs> this is not meant to be a shot across your bow or anything because for, it's, all, it's different for all of us, right? We all have a different thing that we tend to get wrapped up in that we can get to worshiping and we can get to, um, to just caring too much about. Um, the point is, the point of the story is I've changed. I'm different. I care about different things than I used to. And, and I didn't wake up one morning and go, you know what? I'm not going to care as much about money, and I'm not going to care as much about my house, and I'm not going to care about stuff or what anybody thinks of me. Um, it was a process, but it, it was something that changed because of Jesus, not because of anything I did, not because I willed it to happen. Um, does anybody remember our vision statement, the, the new vision statement for Finding Life Church? Can anybody shout it out? Every life transformed by by the love of Jesus. I did that kind of because I wanted to see if you knew, but I also just wanted to make sure you're still with me. Then it's been 10, 15 minutes. Um, Yes, every life transformed by the love of Jesus. And something about you, if you've accepted him, if he is your Lord and Savior, something about you has been changed by his love. And it's good for you to know what has been changed about you because what uh, the, the guy who wrote Saturate, Jeff uh, Vanderseld is his name. Um, he's the, the guy that has written the books about missional communities. He's out of Tacoma, Washington. He says this all the time, and it's kind of just stuck in my head. Whatever God's done to you, he wants to do through you. Whatever he's changed about you, he wants to use for others. He wants to use it to grow his kingdom. He wants to use it so that you'll bear fruit, and so this his kingdom will grow. That is the purpose of him placing us in his vineyard. Okay, number two, God has immense patience. This is the other thing we see from this, from this parable that Jesus is telling. God has immense patience, but that patience isn't to be taken advantage of. So we definitely see his patience in this parable, right? He, he sends this vineyard owner sending multiple people, and the same thing keeps happening to them, right? And I don't know about you, but if, if I was the vineyard owner, the first person that they beat up and threw out, that'd be, it'd be over. Like, there'd be, there'd be cops called, there'd be, there'd be people over there. I would have booted them out right away. There's no way I would have been like, yeah. So, like, if you own any rental property and somebody trashes it, I'm sure that you're not like, oh, it's okay. It'll be fine. Like, that's just not how we operate. Um, but, but God is so different from us, right? The owner of this vineyard, he sends servant after servant to get beat up. And that's the kind of patience God had with the Israelites. They kept running to other gods. They kept abandoning him, running off. And God continued to pursue them and and rescued them. And they would turn their backs on him again. And that wasn't something that happened over a few years or even a couple decades. It was hundreds of years. It was generation after generation after generation. And so finally he says, okay, I'm going to kick you out of the land. I'm going to exile you from the land. Like I said, I would if you, did, if you didn't do what, you know, do what we agreed upon. And so he does. But even then, he still brings them back. He still brings them back to the land and gives them more chances. 
and more chances. Um, the other side of this parable, though, is, that, is what can happen when we know the person on the other end is going to be patient. In this case, the vineyard owner has been very patient, and clearly these tenants took advantage of that, right? They were like, I mean, the, you learn a lesson from every interaction. The first interaction was, well, he didn't do anything, so he's not going to do anything the next time. So we're just going to keep doing it. There is something about us as humans, like this is not just in the story, right? There's something about us as humans that, um, like if, if we can get away with something, you know, we'll try to. Um, a lot of times if you give us an inch, we'll take a mile. It's just in our human nature. But I also want to be clear on something. When I say God's patience isn't to be taken advantage of, I don't mean that in some kind of a, like, you should be afraid, you know, or um, like, he's not going to love you any more or less based on how you and I perform. So it's not like a fear thing. There, fear does not come from God. That's not the way I mean that. Because the truth is, is that God's fear is unending, right? It never ends. His mercies begin anew every single morning. What I mean by this is, is simply just the difference in a, and I think it's just a heart position. Um, and I hope that you get this over and over again as we go through this message is, one heart position is, I don't need to be obedient to God because he's patient. He'll forgive me. The other heart position is, God is so patient that I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient. I'm motivated to be obedient because of how patient he is with me. It really is taking advantage of what God has done versus being motivated by what God has done. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. And that's not the goal anyway. The goal is to let God work in us so that we're more like Jesus, so that when we represent him to other people, they're getting a clearer picture of who he actually is. And I know that's something I struggle with a lot. Um, I have this, this problem, this tendency that when things get hard in my life, that I'll run away and I'll, I'll like sit in the corner and pout. And I'm being, this is, are we, are we in the safe zone? Is this reels better than perfect? Um, yeah, I, I can be a toddler almost sometimes with God. Like I will go and sit in my corner and, and put my head between my knees and like not talk to him for a while. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking about sometimes preaching like this can be therapeutic <laughs> because it, like God uses it to make me sort things out in my life. And one of the things that is absolutely true is that God and I have a father-son relationship. We really do. And I never realized that until this. Like, I treat him like I treated my father, my earthly father. Um, we would get in fights all the time, all the time. And I would either run out of the house or I would go to my room and I would slam the door and I would not talk to him for a while. And I remember sharing at his funeral a few years back that one of the things that I probably didn't realize at the time was how just selfless and forgiving my father was because he would always take me back and he would not hold a grudge against me. He would always be like, it's all right. It's going to be okay. I love you. Um, and that's how God is, right? But here's the thing. I take advantage of it. If I'm being honest, I take advantage of it because I know that when I'm pouting, I'm thinking about it. I, even, I do. I think about it in my head. I'm like, you know what? It's okay because he'll, he'll be back. He'll be there when I get back. He'll take me back. He always does. And, you know, what I pray about and what I want to be and do is, is to be more motivated by, by what he's done than be taking advantage of what he's done and let his patience and, and my belief in his patience drive me back to him knowing that, that he can handle whatever it is I'm going to say. He can handle however it is that I feel because he already knows it anyway. 
And I want to let that patience drive me back to him so that he can work it out in my heart way faster. Because I always get there. It just takes me a few days sometimes to get there. And maybe you can relate to that. I mean, maybe there's something in there that, that can help you. Um, because I know <clears throat> it's helped me. Uh, number three uh, is God's great love, right? This is something else we see in this parable. God's great love sending his son should motivate us to live for his purposes. It is crazy to think that this vineyard owner, after sending three servants that got beaten and chased away, would send us his son. Like, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, after all, past behavior is usually an indicator of future behavior. Not all the time, but a lot of times. In this, in this case, the behavior got worse. And so he kills, these, these people kill the owner's son. And one of the other interesting things I got from this, this, uh, this parable is the, the contrast, right? So we see the overwhelming, unending love of the Father, and we see that contrast with the depravity of the human heart. You know, maybe we aren't going to ever murder anyone. I get that. But, but, but this is who we are, like, without the presence and love and power of Jesus in our lives. Like we are prone to selfishness and wickedness and, and all these bad things. And it might not be that extreme. It might be smaller than that, but it's there. Um, I read a commentary on these verses and, and it said, you know, these tenant farmers probably, if, if this was a real scenario in ancient Israel, like these tenant farmers would have seen the sun coming and thought, well, the, the guy who owns the, the vineyard must be dead. Well, that's why his son is coming. And so in Israelite law, if that son's dead, they can take it. And so that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to make sure that they got this land. And that's, that's who God sent his son to die for, the people that do that. He sent his son to die for us, prone to wickedness, prone to living for ourselves most of the time. That's who God sent Jesus to die for. And, and that's the thing that always gets me about God's love, that I hope that we can all let it sink in and just take root in our heart, is that, you know, there's a lot of evil in this world. There's a lot of hurt in this world, and we see a fraction of it. He sees all of it, all the time, from the beginning of time to the end of time, and that did not stop him from sending his son to die for all that. That's how much he loves. And I hope that that reality, that truth, will just that we'll believe it with everything that we have, that he's seen the worst in us, and he, he wanted to send his son to die for us anyway. And let that not make us feel guilty or anything like that. But let that motivate us. Make, let, it, let that help us to respond in the, same, in the same way that he's responded to us. To live for his purposes rather than our own. All right, number four. Uh, this parable, I should speed up. It's 1128. This parable also does a, a great job of, of something Paul says in, in Romans 1122. He says, notice how God is both kind and severe. God's kindness is seen in sending far more servants than the Israelites deserve, and his severity is seen after the wicked farmers kill his son. Jesus is God's final messenger. He is the sum of God's revelation to sinful man. If we reject him, there is no further remedy. Rejecting him means that we spend eternity separated from God. And I know personally, I like to think of all the blessings that come with God. I don't so much like to think about the other side. 
Um, and there, there, just as there is a reality that comes with us putting our hope in Jesus, there is a reality that comes along with us rejecting him. And let's not forget that Jesus was not talking to non-believers. He was talking to the religious leaders of the day. He was talking to the chosen nation, his chosen people. They wrongly thought that, he owned, that they owned the vineyard. They thought it was theirs, their ministry, and they used it for their own selfish purposes. And as a result, God kicked them out. God set them aside. And through Jesus' sacrifice, he extended his promises that were for the Israelites to all of us. The point of that is if we profess to be God's people, if we who profess to be God's people live selfishly and we don't bear fruit and we, we really just t- try to think that we own the vineyard, the potential exists that he could set us aside and raise up others. And we need to apply that not just to the, the big church, but to our church. And remember that this is not our church. This is not my church. This is not yours. This is not the elders' church. It is God's church. And we're blessed to be able to work for his church, to produce fruit, to impact others, to show others who he is, to live for his purposes. All right, number five, God's certain triumph in Jesus, his triumph in Jesus should motivate us to live for his purposes. This parable should both challenge us and encourage us. There is encouragement here. It should encourage God's faithful servants that keep getting beat up and tossed out of the vineyard to run back into it. I'm sure we can all relate to that in our service of God and God's church, that at times it feels like we get beat up and tossed out. And there's times when I feel that way, when I wonder, when I question, when I even sometimes angrily ask God, like, why does this have to be so hard? Why isn't this easier? And, and maybe we can all relate to that. And I think this parable should encourage us because it reminds us that we're on the winning side. We are on the winning side. God wins, Jesus triumphs. The tenants who thought they could win by killing the son did not win. They forgot that God has all the power. And the good thing is that the sin of the religious leaders, it could, it could never stop God's plan. It could not thwart God's will. God wins. Jesus triumphs. The grave could not hold him. He has defeated sin and death. And we've placed our faith in him, then we have that power within us. So if you've ever felt beaten up, tossed out, I hope this encourages you to get up, to dust yourself off, and to run back into the fray because Jesus is on your side. He's on my side. He's beside us. He's with us every single moment of every single day. Um. So as I wrap up, this band, you guys can come back up uh, at this point. Um, I had a different, like, ending plan, and then I went to um, Amy Rennie's uh, memorial service on Thursday, and it was a beautiful service. It, it, was, it was great. And as part of the message, Jake, um, Jake did the, the service, and he read Hebrews 6.19 um, that says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And he went on to describe the image of, of a boat anchored in, in rough waters. And I don't know, it really had a, had a huge impact on me that day. And I, and I want you to just try to picture this as I describe it. Um, I want you to picture an ocean. I want you to picture an anchor, a huge, heavy anchor dug into the bedrock of an ocean. 
It can't go anywhere. It is firm and secure. And as you follow the chain up to the water, you see waves and wind of the worst kind. And the boat is being tossed back and forth and tipped over and tipped back over. But that anchor isn't letting that boat go anywhere. And for me, as I listen to that, there's two things that come to mind. One is just life. Man, there are times, and you know, Mike mentioned it, life feels like a storm. Waves crashing down on you, being tossed around, beaten up. Life throws so many things at us. What Hebrews 6.10 is telling us is that in the midst of all of that hard stuff, that we can have peace for our souls. If we hold tight to the hope of Jesus, he is an anchor, an immovable anchor. And the other thing that comes to mind is just how it connects with this parable this, uh, of these tenants in the vineyard. You know, we're the tenants. We're in the vineyard. We're in God's kingdom. And Jesus is calling us to live for his purposes rather than our own. And, and that's not always easy. You know, it's rarely easy. And there's going to be times when you're living for God's purposes, it's going to feel like you're, you're on that boat and you're being tossed around and beaten up and the waves are crashing down on you. And I just want us to remember that, that we have an anchor and it's our hope in Jesus. And that hope is greater than the waves. And I want to say that again. The power of hope is greater than the power of the waves. The waves might toss you around, they will not break you, and they will not sweep you away. And let's let that hope drive us as we continue to pick ourselves up and, and run back into the fray.